Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones is underway, and you can stay up to date with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre-capable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, our YouTube channel has tons of other Game of Thrones related content, which you can find at youtube.com slash the ringer. And for even more Thrones coverage, head over to theringer.com. David, Bill and Chelsea Clinton have a new podcast and it's called Why Am I Telling You This? Based on a rhetorical <laughs> device that Clinton uses in speeches. What I want to know is, what alternative titles would you have considered for the Clinton podcast? Oh, man. Uh, I'm trying to think of good Clinton jokes here. Unfortunately, like there's there's no good NAFTA puns uh, that, that spring to mind. Um, uh, maybe a, a podcast called Hope. Um, is that a, mm-hmm. is that a good one? Solid. Um, the Solid. Uh, what more? Uh, the, uh, what do they call them now? The explainer in chief. The explainer in chief cast. Maybe uh, I feel like I'm leaving. I'm leaving Chelsea out of this. But uh, um, uh, this uh, gosh, um, Pod Save America. I feel like took all the good ones. Um, uh, the best. So what did he say? The best social program is a good job. Wasn't that a big Clinton thing? The the best social yeah. program is a good. The best social program is a good pod. Would be I think my final my final Ooh. answer. Ooh, I was I was just gonna say for the way this business is going, the era of big podcasting is over. Bill Clinton and the Podfunk All-Stars. That's my new one, sorry. <laughs> we are the comeback kid of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you may have already been named the host of the CBS Evening News. Ryan Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here with three topics for your pleasure and amusement. First, David, speaking of CBS... The network is blowing up its news lineup from morning to early evening. What does that say about the old and gray institutions of network news in 2019? Second, ESPN the magazine announced it will stop printing in September. We discuss its legacy and the uncertain fate of words at ESPN. And finally, Elizabeth Warren is putting out tons and tons and tons of policy ideas how is that playing with the people who cover her? All that plus a notebook dump and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with CBS. Uh, and by the way, if you're writing about what's happening at CBS News, you are contractually obligated to use the word shakeup. This is a shakeup <laughs> at CBS News, though we will also accept sweeping changes. By the way, sweeping changes. That's okay, too. Um, amongst those sweeping changes, Mr. Shoemaker, all coming at the hands of new president Susan Zarensky uh, in an effort to repair CBS's less moon vest, Charlie Rose, Jeff Fager hellscape, um, a new morning crew with Tony DeCopel and Anthony Mason joining Gail King. Uh, Nora O'Donnell is taking over the CBS evening news and the newscast is apparently moving to Washington, DC. Uh, John Dickerson, formerly of the morning show is going to 60 minutes uh, full disclosure, I used to work with Dickerson and DeCopel. All right, a couple thoughts here. First is, and I've, I've bored you with this before, but the Curtis theory of network news, which is that nowadays the behind the scenes machinations and bloodlettings of network news 
are orders of magnitude more interesting than anything that actually appears on television. Yeah. Is this yet another example? Could you have named who was on the CBS morning show if without any help? I mean, I might have needed a little bit of help. CBS is weirdly would have weirdly been the one that I would have gotten because I was I've, I've watched it a couple times recently. I'm thinking just because I had the channel on from the night before. I have no idea why, but also because uh, like I'm a I'm a fan of John Dickerson. Going <laughs> like I like the Slate Political Gab Fest. You know, like I like I like, and so it was always sort of a novelty to me that he ended up as a morning show host, um, which I think is probably a piece of this conversation. I mean, I think the big question here, and you you alluded to it, is is just like how big of a deal of, is this in the real world, right? I mean, are we just, you know, is this a is this a significant move for the way for entertainment for the way we consume news for any you know for anything that's even remotely concrete, or are we just kind of shuffling the deck chairs, you know, in a battle over a nominal sliver of a dying audience? You know, I mean, it's just it's it's a <laughs> it, it's a, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I picked door number two uh, first of all. And second of all, dying sliver of a uh, of a of a dying audience or or tiny sliver of a dying audience. But it's really funny because every article I've seen about this has alluded to the network of Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow. And this is like every time something bad happens at CBS, people drag out Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. By the way, he stopped doing the news in 1981. Like <laughs> this, this, this is we we are no longer besmirching the network of Walter Cronkite because nobody remembers that he was on television. Like this is, I think, for anybody who's you know not my grandfather's age, this is the network of Katie Couric doing the news or of Dan Rather screwing up the Bush, you know, Vietnam War story. Yeah. This is not this is not Walter Cronkite. So it's just funny to see that pulled out because yeah, I agree with you. I think it is a small thing. I guess, I guess the related question though, is like, what are these shows? If these shows are going to be on television and I read a figure that even the CBS this morning show, which is third place in the ratings gets $253 million in revenue. So it's not nothing, wow. right? No, that's what a lot. should they be? Yeah. And, and I think it's kind of interesting that, CBS, when they when they were trying to figure out what to do in the morning, has consistently gone with smart. There was Dickerson, whom you mentioned, who was a print guy. Before that, there was Charlie Rose pre-scandal, who was definitely in like the smart realm. Uh, there's Nora O'Donnell. And now there's Tony DeCopel, who was another former print guy. So they mm-hmm. feel like they've leaned into, we're going to be we're going to kind of maybe bridge the gap between morning chat that you're used to and the kind of MSNBC style, you know, this is like a hyper smart, hyper literate person uh, who's doing the news. Does that make sense? Because I feel that's kind of what the future slash present is. And network news has kind of stayed out of that realm really, but they feel like they're kind of at least nodding in that direction. Yeah, I think that that's right. I, I mean, I think that, again, we're sort of, I mean, we're operating, I mean, along in some very, like, very narrow margins here. And we, we make distinctions between the different shows because everybody's sort of a role on these morning TV shows, right? I mean, everybody sort of fits a certain mold. And even just to look at CBS in particular, I mean, I told you, I love John Dickerson, but, you know, when he replaced Charlie Rose, it felt like it was because he's, you know, Charlie Rose's stunt double. You know, I mean, it's that they were, he, he was playing the same part that Charlie Rose played, like you said. And, um, and 
and I, I yeah, I think that it, I think they they are they 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 certainly are leaning towards. I, I think the overall. I mean, this is this is a little bit weird, but the but the overwhelming feeling I get when watching CBS this morning, or at least in the uh, King O'Donnell Dickerson era, was that you were a little bit blessed by their presence and not in a snooty way, but it was like sort of, it was like three people who, who didn't, I guess with like on NBC, there's a sort of like chippy or chirpiness that like everybody's just like excited to be doing morning news. And on CBS, it's like, these aren't people who would naturally be up at seven in the morning and fully and, and ready to go. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're people, they're people who have, they're people who would have other jobs, except they were like called into this line of work, which is, it, it did feel a little bit like a blessing. I, 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 that's a really interesting way to put it. It's funny. Cause I was never, never much of a morning Joe fan, but that was kind of the quality of morning Joe. What mm-hmm. are these people doing here in the morning? In, yeah. even, in fact, in morning Joe, I always felt they looked a little sleepy, looked like they'd be kind of rushed out of bed a yes. little bit. But the, as you said, that gave the show kind of an authenticity because it wasn't chirpy. It wasn't Al Roker, you know, in a, yeah. doing a cooking segment. Sure. Um, when, when Joe Scarborough yeah, takes Scott him- back in our day. When Joe Scarborough takes a day off, your first you know, you don't you don't wonder what he you know what other obligation he had. You just assume he's still asleep, right? I mean that's that's exactly the <laughs> the sort of vibe of the yeah. show. So that's an i that's an idea. I think I think the other thing that they've been the other way they've sort of stuck out is by just landing big interviews. And and yes. Gail King has become this really unlikely star. She got better O'Rourke for an interview, which we talked about yeah. on the pod a while back. But, you know, the real big one was R. Kelly, and she's in the middle of her contract negotiations this spring. Um, I think the idea was that she was going to come back and be part of whatever reinvented uh, morning show CBS was going to come up with. But, you know, I think Gail King's star was was burning pretty medium bright at that point. Then she sits down with R. Kelly, and should we just play a little bit of R. Kelly footage so we can remember how amazing that was. Hit it, hit it, Jim. Here we go. Please, please. This is not me, y'all. I'm fighting for my life. Y'all killing me with this I gave y'all 30 years of my career. Robert. 30 years of my career. Y'all trying to kill me. You killing me, man. This is not about music. I'm trying to have a relationship with my kids, and I can't do it. That very deadpan Robert, she uttered in the middle of that rant, was mm-hmm. worth a reported $11 million in her new contract, according to The Hollywood Reporter. So <laughs> that, <laughs> Gail King and, and Oprah Winfrey recently told uh, The Hollywood Reporter also, I sent her a text saying, Jesus loves you when that R. Kelly thing hit, because there has never been a better timed moment in, in television history, in recent television history than that. You know, that all of a sudden, Gail King was not just a star. She was a big star. Mm-hmm. And CBS was like, oh, boy, we can't afford to lose her at all. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that she's she's I mean, the the huge amount of profit these shows get aside, you know, I mean, and 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 certainly the celebrity of people like Gail King and Nora O'Donnell, you know, is nothing to scoff at. We we spend um our public consciousness spends way too has spent way too much energy energy figuring out who's hosting the Today Show and every you know in every time block over the past couple of years. Um, that I mean, it's a real thing, but but it is 
it is sort of fascinating how much a star can rise and fall based on one interview and uh and and how and how much sort of credibility and 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 uh market value some a moment like that can can provide and Gail King obviously was sort of a star before she was a star um but her her climb you know and her 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 career arc is is just you know it's it's pretty incredible and pretty fascinating in its own right remember when we were listening to that Beto interview she did a while back and there was that semi-tense exchange between her and Nora O'Donnell at the end O'Donnell was kind of like did you ask him about this and and Gail King said something like yeah that's on social media that's what social media is for page six did a whole article about how there was tension between the two of them which they and CBS fiercely denied but um I can't help but think that page six is listening to the press box and actually taking us at face value which is a huge mistake um David I want to have a moment of silence for Jeff Glore do you know who Jeff Glore is uh, I know because of, <laughs> I, 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 I now know who Jeff Glor is, but you go ahead. He is the, um, if we had to describe him, I think he is the Star Trek red shirt of network news. Oh, wow. That's he great. is a guy who's been hosting CBS evening news for 18 months and doing so extremely anonymously. Um, he got two Trump interviews in five days last year, which is kind of when he last popped up on my screen. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I actually had to look him. I just had to like read Wikipedia to be like, I need to remind myself who this is. Uh, He's 43 years old, still a young man, Buffalo native and Buffalo Bills fan, a la Tim Russert. He went to Syracuse, of course. And Mm -hmm. and really, uh, he has apparently been offered another job at CBS as he's going to be replaced by O'Donnell and has decided whether he's going to do that or not at this recording. The only other article I could find about him was this, the Greenwich, Connecticut hospital announced today that Jeff Glor will serve as master of ceremonies at the under the stars event on Friday, May 17th. So, wow. uh, big things, Godspeed, Jeff Glor and big things are in store for you. I'm sure. Um, another thing came out of the CBS thing that was kind of surprising to me that did you remember that Oprah was a 60 minutes correspondent? Until recently? Yes. Yes. She did this big interview with the Hollywood reporter and revealed that she had quit. And (laughs) apparently nobody knew. And she told the Hollywood reporter, how should I say this? It's never a good thing when I have to practice saying my name and have to be told that I have too much emotion in my name. I think I did seven takes on just my name because it was, quote, too emotional. I go is the too much emotion in the Oprah part or the Winfrey part. And I think she's talking about the beginning of 60 minutes where it's, I'm Steve Croft, I'm Leslie Stahl, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And apparently Oprah got into it with producers because she said, I'm Oprah Winfrey with too much emotion or too much excitement. What in the <laughs> world should we make of that? That seems like such an, uh, but th- maybe that's indicative of the, of the, I mean, maybe that's symbolic of the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's like this old media enterprise, these morning shows, these mag news magazines, the, the evening news that we're treating with such gravity. And it's just, we're clinging to these like little contrivances of the past. And it all just seems, I mean, honestly, like I don't, I pay attention to this stuff and I don't know if, if becoming a correspondent for going from the CBS this morning to a correspondent for 60 minutes is, is a slap in the face or is that like a golden parachute or is that just like a, just a, like a lateral move? I have no idea. You know, like, I don't, uh, it, and, and the same, I mean, Glor, you know, I, I think that you're, 
you know, eulogy for him was was spot on. It'll be interesting to see what happens with him too. I mean, the whole thing was presented a week ago. We just we knew that there was, or a few days ago, we knew that there that this was you know kind of about to happen. That there was going to be a major shakeup. There you go. I use the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know what it meant. <laughs> sweeping changes, then, David. Sweeping changes. But, but, but when when the changes were finally swept, it just sort of felt like okay. So we, we, I mean, this seems like I would if they had just done it without any fanfare. I'm not sure that I would have noticed. No, I wouldn't have noticed for for a year at, at most. I would have just I would have seen a clip from CBS this morning, and I would have said, "Wait, is John Dickerson still not on that show? Did something yeah. happen?" Yeah, yeah. On the by the way, on the Oprah thing. Because shouldn't Oprah at the beginning of sixty minutes just come out and said, "I'm Oprah"? We don't. Yeah. Do we, she need a last name? I'm Oprah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you know. You know me. You don't. We don't need any more introduction. If I can squeeze a final bit of symbolism out of this, uh, mostly non-story, I will say this: that moving the evening news, diminished though it may be, to Washington D.C. is interesting to me because. Mm-hmm it seems like CBS is saying that's where the action is that the world, at least as long as Donald Trump is president has reoriented itself, that the news out of Washington is not only the kind of, you know, what the president did today is, is often the top story, but it is always the top story now. And that we feel that doing this out of New York, which they've done for decades and decades is really just, just feels off. And if we're trying to gain traction, and grab a little more of this aging small audience we need to go where the action is i think that's sort of interesting yeah i think that's right and i think that's absolutely right and i think that that the um you know i mean i i don't i don't again care too much about where the where these where the where the the evening news is going to emanate from given that it will look and feel almost exactly the same although you're right there is a certain nod in that direction and you won't watch it yeah, and I and I and I will continue to not uh, be a regular viewer of it. Um, you know, I mean, it's like when it's like when the you know when Conan O'Brien moved the moved the show out to L.A. You know, when when they do that with the late night shows because you kind of get a different caliber, different different sort of guest depending on which major which metropolis you're, you're located in. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it. It definitely it definitely is uh, it's relevant. And and I and I uh, you know. In so much as all of these things did seem a little bit like deck chair moving, that seems like you know maybe maybe this that'll pan that'll end up being the biggest move of the day. All right, David. Now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. David, did you happen to see the controversial finish to the Kentucky Derby over the weekend? The horse Maximum Security yes. won the race. Yeah, and then we got disqualified for interference, meaning that. Country House, a 65 to 1 long shot. God, is there any more insufferable name for a horse than Country House? Uh, became the winner. It was an extremely overworked Twitter joke to say that Country House lost the Kentucky Derby but won the Electoral College. Uh, thanks to <laughs> listeners Tim Sampson and Brian Cogshall for that one. Speaking of horrible controversy, David, did you watch the trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie? Oh, did I? Yeah, the semi-beloved video game character as rendered in director Jeff Fowler's movie is going to have human teeth, uh, one of those step counters that people use for fitness, and also weirdly is scored to music by Coolio, uh, which I guess is keeping with the whole 90s bit. After the trailer's release, Game Informer reported, Sonic the Hedgehog's movie director has heard the feedback and vows to fix the design. 
It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. The people have spoken. They're going to give Sonic visible genitalia. Uh, that was a fun one this week. And finally, David, <laughs> this week, Twitter had a lot of fun with the Pope. On Friday, His Holiness Pope Francis tweeted, quote, we need a journalism that is free at the service of truth, goodness, and justice, a journalism that helps build a culture of encounter. That was a tweet from the Pope. <laughs> um, like I said, a lot of fun with that. Uh, here are some examples. Quote, when I started reading this, I honestly thought the Pope was complaining about reaching his monthly free article limit. Um, this is the lead from the Pope's Why I'm Joining the Athletic Essay. And confirmed at Pontifex, also copies and paste story URLs to bypass paywalls. Thanks to our great pal, Isaac Chips, for that. All right. <laughs> Topic number two, David. ESPN the magazine. On Tuesday, it was reported that ESPN will publish its last print magazine in a regular print magazine, I should say, in September, which will be the body issue, one of the most successful things they've ever created. Uh, a couple of top line items, if you missed them. No layoffs yet at ESPN, though. We'll see especially when it comes to those production personnel. ESPN may still do quote-unquote cover stories for the website because Dirty Secret, one way to get famous athletes uh, to let you do interviews with them is to promise cover stories. And a source who'd seen the finances of the magazine recently told me that the mag was losing money, but only single-digit millions. Okay, I got a couple of thoughts about this. Number one, I think it's important to understand when we're thinking about ESPN magazine legacy and history of that, it was founded to kill sports illustrated. Yes. <laughs> and if you read James Andrew Biller's oral history, if you talk to people, that was the explicit idea and was staffed by John Papanek and Steve Wolf, who were SI X's. And there was a little bit of an element of a revenge tour with them. And, you know, it goes back to 1998 when SI, which was still viable SI at that point in history, was one of the few national sports voices anywhere that competed with ESPN. So ESPN is saying there's one media entity out there that has right. a tiny toehold in the sports conversation. Let's kill it. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it, I guess it's hard to look, it's hard, it's hard now to look back and see and, and feel what it was like then and, and how, how bold a move launching ESPN the magazine seemed at the time, right? I mean, it, it was it, it was take to take on. I mean, obviously there was Sports Illustrated wasn't the only sports magazine. I mean, we my my house was a subscriber of the Sporting News for quite some time, but SI was was it? It was the standard, and ESPN, um, you know, had the had the the influence and the power to take it on, and to, I mean, like I mean, at, to kill it. I, I mean, that's obviously that was the goal, but as a as a consumer, um, you could you could read between the lines and see that. And uh, but regardless, just to just to compete with it, I mean, that seemed like um, just such a bold move. At least for my you know from from in my young brain, it seemed like just pretty pretty ballsy. But um, certainly, they had more influence and more power than just about anybody else in sports. And and you know, starting the magazine was a I mean, in some ways, a very logical move. It went super young SI, mm -hmm. you know, they really were intent on portraying SI as your father's sports magazine, if not your grandfather's and ESPN was trying to undercut them. Yes. Be younger, be hipper. And, and remember when you first read it in 1998 and its idea of hipness felt like a kid with his cap turned backwards, spray painting a brick wall, Absolutely. you know, it was just like, yeah. Hey kid, Hey kids, look at this. 
We got a sports magazine for you, not for your square old dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, it was a really good looking magazine. I mean, it's, it, a lot of the magazines, the sort of like the, the I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like ESPN, the magazine, uh, yeah, Play, uh, which I know you were involved with, but also like, you know, there's the the later, you know, uh, just general interest or, or political magazines like George. They they all went really design heavy. And in some ways, you look at ESPN, the magazine, and it, it ESPN.com looked like, you know, a word document at this point in time, but ESPN the magazine was sort of designing the web or designing what the what ESPN would eventually look like in a lot of ways. It was a, it was a very forward thinking, but you're right, very deliberately youthful. It almost felt like a like a you know eighty page ad campaign or something, and in some ways it was. I guess you could make the case, <laughs> but but it was uh, it, the 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 whole aesthetic was was very it was just so much different than what you were used to with with sports magazines. It was so busy. Aesthetically speaking, yeah, that front of the book designed by Darren Perry, that typography, the photos, and it was very creative. But, you know, when I look back at those issues, it was a lot. And, you know, the front of the book was very, very clever, but it was Mm -hmm. almost like going to a restaurant and eating three appetizers and then you're not hungry for the main course anymore. Oh, sure. Like, God, I I can't take anymore. I'm done. Give me. (laughs) I am. I am. You know, I'm finished, man. I can't do this. And and it's funny because I think they kept their features really, really short at the beginning. And, you know, in trying to get young kids in the door, they, I think, sacrificed some modicum of seriousness and of heft. And, you know, it was like almost like they were trying to be so different than Sports Illustrated that mm-hmm. at the beginning they just weren't competing in the same kind of feature playing field that SI was really at all. You know, they they certainly had good stuff, but it just never added up, you know, to what SI was putting together week to week. I think the body issue, which was a Gary Belsky idea if I'm if I'm oh, not yeah. mistaken, was really one of the most genius things they did. Because you know, when you're trying to when you're trying to compete with SI, you take the SI swimsuit issue which was already controversial forever had been controversial and you yes. in one stroke make it into this out of touch Hefner-esque thing by saying look we're not we're not going after swimsuit models we're going after athletes and we're not just going after female athletes we're going after men too and we're going after all shapes and body types and we're going to create this little franchise that was so simple and yet so smart and you know, speaking of killing, I mean, obviously the SI swimsuit issue keeps truck keeps trucking along, but man, that was really, really, really nifty. And to go back to the ad campaign point I made before, I mean, the body issue probably does a better job of at least uh, cueing me in mentally to to kind of what I was getting at. You know, in SI, you could it seemed like it was always very clear where like the ads were on one page and the stories were on the next page. Uh, there was just some, there were like just mental cues of the old magazine format and ESPN, it was just full bleed every page, um, just saturated colors. And I, and, and you could, I mean, the, the body issue looked like, um, you know, these like heavily workshopped, uh, national ad campaigns, you know, and it, and it had, it, it definitely had more of a, well, I mean, just more of a modern, more of a coherent aesthetic than, than, you know, the competition did. Yeah, and the key, I think, for that first issue was getting Serena Williams to play along. Because Absolutely. Because once she did it, everybody did it. 
once you convinced her, everybody did it. And and the floodgates open from there. Uh, we got to play the classic commercial now. Stefan oh, yeah. Marbury and Kevin Garnett accidentally predict the creation of the body issue many, many years before it was actually created. ESPN magazine is going to be stacked. But please, no swimsuits. Yeah, no bikinis. No one piece. No thongs. None of that. All new. Tastefully done. But definitely all new. That's important. Very important. By the way, that commercial would not air today. No. That would not That's- that would not be on television today. And the uh, the basketball players would not agree to do it. No, <laughs> but it was funny at the time. It was very funny. Yeah, no, their agents would definitely not allow them to do that. I mean, frankly, like Marbury and Garnett, assuming they had like different representation, would probably not them let them appear together in a commercial. You know, I mean, it, it, there's so much about that besides just the content that is something of a bygone era. A couple of people mentioned this week that 98 and that period around then was when ESPN branding was just going to all these amazing places. Uh, you and I spent many a random weekend day in the ESPN zone in Washington, D.C. Uh, yeah. That's kind of the mandatory citation here. A lot of people forget, I think, about the ESPN Gatorade flavor that was developed around that time. Oh, wow. And yeah. uh, our boss, uh, Bill Simmons, has compared this to like ESPN Scientology period, which is, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, they were going crazy. So ESPN, the magazine. And that and that title sounded weird from jump in 1998 was just another sort of part of the armor uh, there. That is always it's always reminded me of that um, scene in Spaceballs where uh, the Mel Brooks uh, Yoda character goes Spaceballs, the flamethrower. You know, that's like that's ESPN, the magazine to me. I think it's best period feature wise was the last decade, much sure. of which was in the Chad Millman and Allison Overholt eras. I mean, this is Thompson, Wickersham, Van Nada, Kimes, Van Valkenburg, Kuhn. You had moonlighting long formers like Eli Saslow and J.R. Moringer. Tomley Tomlinson's feature that became the book uh, appears then. Fantastic, yeah. They took a magazine that was good, but had a really silly name and often a really silly reputation and gave it some heft. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that from my vantage point, it looks like they spent, you know, their first period trying to be the anti-Sports Illustrated, and then they realized that, you know, there was value in having their own Sports Illustrated, right? I mean, to have this sort of home for the great long-form writing in the, under the ESPN umbrella, it makes sense for that to originate from the magazine. And and obviously, a lot of that appeared online and, and, and you know, had, had different homes, but um, that sort of heft is a uh, aspect of real value to a company like ESPN and you kind of have to figure out where it lives I thought you know at ESPN the magazine it did it it, it was you know, really well conceived and and it was a you know a wonderful home for all that stuff and those writers that I mentioned pulled it out of a phase where it was a little bit players tribune at times mm-hmm. yeah it was a little bit you know I mean, like the good examples were like Dan Lebitard talking to Ricky Williams. Here's what my season was like. Here's my first season was like, I seem to remember that. Um, But they did a lot of that. And that cast we just named took ESPN, the magazine and reoriented it to a, 
I'm the writer and I'm going to tell you what you need to know. This is not a magazine run by athletes, except when we do that special issue where the athletes are the editors. We are, we're the people here. Uh, we're the writers, we're the reporters, and we are reasserting ourselves. I thought that was really important. And the irony, which you just alluded to, was kind of in that moment, it ceased to be a magazine, you know, yeah. to a lot of people. I think I read almost every feature from the people listed above as in the mag on the website. You know, the front of the book, front of the books are impossible to do now. All those mm-hmm. things, you know, covers and all those things are so much harder to do in the world we live in. But, you know, people were reading those pieces on the web and apparently, and hopefully, I guess that brings us to our next topic, which is what's going to happen to words at ESPN now. Um, this is something I think a lot of us have been wondering, not only with the new Jimmy Pataro regime, but just with the way the world is going and with yeah. ESPN's, the, you know, the way they're getting less money from from cable than they were in the old days. But I guess, you know, John Skipper, who was the now former president now over at the zone was, you know, the night protector of words at ESPN. He was Mr. Longform, but self-styled Mr. Longform. Um, The website has gotten way more functional now uh, than it is, you know, something that showcases words. And when you see this happening, on the one hand, you know, a print magazine uh, that stops printing in 2019 is not terribly surprising. But I think the obvious sort of question to ask, or at least situation to monitor is, you know, what happens? Does ESPN care about words? Does it care about these kinds of stories in the same way it did a couple of years ago? I mean, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, there's part, I mean, this is, this is sort of an age old question when, I mean, at least it's maybe a new media age old question. Um, You know, I mean, there's a reason why websites count, you know, the amount of time that every reader spends on every page, you know, it's a, it's a long form is an easy genre not even long form, just good, you know, good writing of, of a certain length is, is an easy target to streamlining and to, to cost cutting. Um, and, you know, I mean, I used to work in book publishing. We've talked about that before, but you know, there's a, there, there's in the, in the modern era, I mean, after, I mean, the, a lot of the, the major publishing houses were sold to, to European conglomerates and, 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 you know, were, were brought in, made parts of bigger companies and, 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 you know, at the end, people used to always talk about how the best, their best case scenario was sort of like a European billionaire who got who who for whom having a serious book publishing imprint was like a a, a sign of of accomplishment. You know, something that he could talk about at dinner parties and 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 be proud of. The little it's a bangle, it's a it's a it's a you know a gold ring, and. um you know, because serious writing and, and and writing of any certain certain length, I mean, of, of any length is is a dying animal, right? I mean, you have to be committed to it as an art form, and as you have to see the significance and the importance in doing it, because it's not just going to be uh, a money maker every time. And uh, and it, it's it, that's a real question ESPN is going to have to face going forward, especially. I mean, you mentioned John Skipper, his 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 podcast when he was on Bill's podcast. 
it was sort of a, an unintentional eulogy for ESPN the magazine and for you know this whole era potentially of of you know great writing at ESPN. Now I don't think they're going to ever like cut Wright Thompson loose, but it, it's a real question about what they look like going forward. Yeah, and 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 you know I don't think the answer is either ESPN absolutely cares about words or they don't care about words at all. But I think people like Wright and all those other people we mentioned just have a different value in the ESPN universe post magazine. And, you know, ESPN's got to figure out what that is. And, you know, my, my vote is that they keep doing the great stories that they're doing. I don't, I don't you know. The business part is, is whatever it does, you know, but I, I obviously want that to keep going. Uh, and I think, you know, reading all this stuff on the web is just great. And it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't bother me at all, but it's just sort of, it really is something to think about. I think when we look back, we're going to look back at the period from, you know, 2011 to 2015 when ESPN, the magazine was in their high period feature wise. Mm -hmm. And, and those of us over at Grantland were occasionally showing up to work sober as the, (laughs) I hate to attach (laughs) the word literary to sports writing ever, but as the high to the extent that I will, the high literary period of ESPN. And that's going to be it. And you know, what, what happens in the future, we're going to have awesome podcasts and awesome television and, Lots of, you know, lots of these smart people. Mina Kimes is already a star in like nine platforms, but that to me is going to be, that's going to be the, that's where words at ESPN, written words, written, printed, journalistic words crested. And I'm going to be fascinated to see if they ever climb up to anywhere near that high again. Yeah, I mean, we talked about in the CBS segment about how their morning show is sort of looking for people that came out of print or, you know, focusing on the sort of smart, uh, you know, the, 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 that, that sort of person as a television presenter. And one wonders if ESPN, if you have to be a multi-platform star to be a successful, you know, a serious writer. Yeah, that's a good question, man. Topic number three, David Elizabeth Warren. In that new round of polls that Joe Biden got a big bump out of, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren also... Got a bump. She's up an average of three points, according to Nate Silver. She is one of these candidates who I'm fascinated by the kind of collective image of what we think Elizabeth Warren looks like and sounds like on the stump versus what she actually sounds like. I was reading a tweet thread from the Washington Post, Dave Weigel, who was at her stump speech in Nevada. First of all, did you know that Elizabeth Warren's stump speech is full of dad humor? I I did. She was talking about how she wanted to be a teacher her whole life. And she says, I knew what I wanted to do since second grade. Uh, I used to line up my dollies and teach them. I was tough, but fair. So so this is, this is dad humor. Okay. This, this could be the, this could, this could be Mm -hmm. straight out of the award Twitter joke of the week. Um, uh, This is Weigel writing Warren on what the, on what her proposed wealth tax could pay for universal childcare, universal pre-K universal college student debt cancellation, Quote, plus, if you sign up now, 12 steak knives. Now, that now that is a that is a reference to random commercials that used to come on in the 1980s when you and I were kids. So Elizabeth Warren is doing steak knife humor. Um, then she has these kind of big lines. She says, the good news is that I have the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. The bad news is that we need the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. Uh, She was also explaining her wealth tax. How many people here are going to own a home? Uh, Weigel reports that most hands went up. And then Warren says, you've been paying a wealth tax for years. They just call it a property tax. 
I just want their tax to include the diamonds, the yachts, and the Rembrandts. She's talking about the uh, super rich. But the most outlandish thing she's doing, David, is I think just putting out tons of policy ideas and daring the media and Democratic voters more generally not to pay attention. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways she's she's addressing... I mean, there's there's obviously a, a a a straight line between the Bernie Sanders campaign from four years ago and and Elizabeth Warren, just in terms of um, you know political leaning. Although Elizabeth Warren would not cast herself in that light, it's she certainly is is playing to a lot of the same constituency. And I think in some ways she's she's answering a lot of the uh, critique of the of the Sanders campaign from four years ago, which was that you know all these suggest all of his policy proposals were sort of pie in the sky that they wouldn't you know they they weren't they weren't uh, functional in the real world. It was you know that kind of thing. And and all of her policy proposals are very concrete. Um, most of them are very plainly paid for, even if they're paid in a way you know paid for in such a way that that would be politically seem to be politically unviable. Um, and and it's just you're right. It's just a a steady barrage of, um, you know, really, really straightforward, mostly big think ideas of of um, of ways that she thinks you know that that the country would run better, and 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 that a lot of voters I think are inclined to agree. I think that that um, you know, in general, in politics, the biggest you know a, a regular critique is that is that there's not a lot of substance, right? I mean, that you're running on on power of personality or or, or uh, you know, just sort of vague ideals. And she's she is deliberately ta- tacking to the opposite direction from that. Yeah. And of course, you know, then we get pieces. I read an Eric Alterman, one in the nation. I think there's been a lot more saying, wait, why isn't the media um, lapping this up? This is what the media and I'm making giant air quotes here because we know when you take on the media, you're undefeated because nobody can really defend themselves. Um, why isn't the media covering her more? Um, and it's interesting because I thought about this a little bit and it's, I think what the, what the media is doing right now is just guessing about the viability of candidates. They don't have nobody, no newspaper and no cable network has endless resources. So they're just figuring out like, how should we, how should we spend our money right now? Who should we cover? Who should we trail around the country? I mean, this would be like if the ringer at the beginning of the last NBA season had to send yes. writers to certain teams and 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 pay for them to travel around the country. Like, would we have sent somebody to Milwaukee for sure at the beginning of the season? I'm not sure. I'm not yeah, sure we would have. And, you know, so essentially, and I think when the media looks, they look at things like fundraising. You know, she raised $6 million in the first quarter, which was not only a third of what Bernie Sanders raised, but a half of what Kamala Harris raised. Um, She was not doing particularly well in the polls until this recent bump. And if you want to argue she's getting extra viability points deducted because she's a woman, I won't argue with you. I guess if there's an, an argument to be made about the quote unquote media, it's that viability questions should probably just be tabled because the last election showed us that very few reporters really had a sense of who was viable. And by that, I mean, Donald Trump and, you know, maybe there's, there's value. And again, it's like, you know, Joe Biden is going to be at least a big story. You know, a couple of these other people are going to be a big story, but there's beyond that. I'm not sure we know the answer to that. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that. 
Yeah, I think in general, the question of viability is a red herring, and that's giving it a really uh, a really positive spin. Um, I mean, listen, the whole point of the primary is, is to choose the ideals that your party is going to follow, right? I mean, to choose the politician who's who has the platform that you're that that, that you want to get behind. And sure, there's some viability, you know, aspects to it, um, but I think that's more built into a person to a personal choice. I mean, it should be a matter left up to the voters. And I don't think that's a problem specific to the Democrat Party. The idea that we're like worrying about candidates' ages at this point, I mean, I think it's just, it's it's e- it's easy fodder for the news. And and with, you know, 24-hour news cycles, I mean, the you know, 24-hour news channels and nonstop news cycle, um, it's just, it, it's just a, an easy time killer, you know? But it doesn't really, it's it, it doesn't seem to be particularly meaningful at all and all it does is end up is is actually just like skew it, it ends up skewing um you know people's perception and, and and ends up i mean i think skewing the entire race and and uh you know it, i i think that you're right to say that in at this point in the democrat you know primary we don't know we don't know and and it's it's uh i think it's elizabeth warren is doing the right thing by making her campaign about issues um, because, you know, in a, in a, in a viability race, I mean, if, if all we're worrying about is viability, then, you know, what's sort of the point of all this? You just pick the person who like looks the most like or the most unlike Trump and, and go forward from there. I mean, it's, it, it just seems sort of, you know, she, she's actually seems to be taking the process seriously and kudos to her for doing it that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I just say again, it's just, if I have any, uh, any sympathy for assignment editors though, it's just that you just. You don't have unlimited resources. You have to pick your spots to some extent. There are 20 Democrats. Let's say that 15 of them are probably worth spending a lot of time on. What do you do? Right. It's like, you know, somebody could look at the ringer and say, why don't you, you guys sure spend a lot of time on Game of Thrones. Why don't you cover other TV shows that may be having a better season than Game of Thrones? We say, well, you know, (laughs) right. You got to make decisions. And, you know, I don't believe, I don't also think in a way this gets solved because if you want information about Elizabeth Warren, there's a lot of information out in the world. And, you know, it's, I, I also go back to this idea when you and I were talking about this, this idea a couple of weeks ago, Twitter is not real life, which has now become the great cliche of the 2020 democratic primary. Um, she, in a way is playing to Twitter. You know, Elizabeth Warren is, is with all these policy proposals is saying, here you go, Ezra Klein, here you go, Matt Iglesias. Here's some policy, right? About yeah. you know, this is this is what you want. This is this is this is the red meat for a certain segment of the media population, and you know this is the kind of thing you want. And you're gonna, I will get coverage. Look, that may be that may be a harder workaround to get people to mention me on the Today Show, but it's a great way to get into the liberal Twitter sphere, blogosphere thinky kind of liberal world and you know that that to me is a strategy of sorts and it's kind of an interesting one the other idea by the way about elizabeth warren that i'm interested in is that she used to be really bad with the media when she was in the senate Mm -hmm. she did not like answering questions uh she was not a good interview at all uh she started to have kind of get better at that in late 2017 according to the boston globe but now as president, as a presidential candidate where she needs the attention, she's all about being better with the media. 
So, you know, again, reporters being humans, I sort of wonder if that doesn't play into any of this at all. Now you need us. Uh, now you want to talk to us. And a lot of these are the same reporters that cover her on the Hill. And, you know, are we going to be as receptive to you as we would have been to somebody who was giving us interviews all along? Yeah, no, I think that's a, I, I, I think that's a real thing. I mean, even when she announced her candidacy, there were reporters, you know, that were mentioning her um, reputation in the media um, on national television, even, you know, regardless of whether or not it was sort of a, an actual <laughs> issue to bring up. Um, but I do think it's a real thing. And I do think that that affects the way, you know, the, especially the, the swing as you as you uh, described where we're uh, I mean, it's a real thing that's going to affect the way people cover. Her. So, um yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a she, she she's a very interesting personality, but I think you know, I mean you can obviously look at it like she's that she's a, capable of of evolving, of learning, and that's a positive thing. But I think more than anything, it's just you know how much she's learned to play the game, and uh, and uh, you know that can be a positive or a negative depending on where you sit. Let's do the notebook dump quickly, David. Uh, Stephen Moore is not going to be a governor of the Federal Reserve. He was done in by CNN's K-File, which found him saying a bunch of terrible things about women announcing basketball games, women refereeing basketball games and other stuff. Um, Here's what I found amazing, David. Stephen Moore was a CNN contributor, kind of one of the reliable, you know, Republican guy to go on CNN. He is nominated for this job by Donald Trump. A CNN reporter destroys his candidacy, and then he is now no longer working for CNN. Uh, according to Jeremy Barr, the Hollywood reporter. <laughs> so did you see the life cycle there? Yeah. I am a perfect CNN considers me a perfectly <laughs> right. uh, viable replacement level pundit. Mm-hmm. Then I do this and CNN says I'm terrible and I'm actually a very offensive, awful person. And now I no longer work at CNN. I just thought that would, what an amazing life cycle. That's kind of like 2019 in a nutshell. That's perfect. Yeah. Also interesting this week, James Bennett, who is the director of the New York times editorial page, is recusing himself from any 2020 editorializing because his brother, Michael, the Senator from Colorado is running for the democratic nomination. David, did you see that Michael Bennett announced his candidacy in a (laughs) medium post that takes 14 minutes to read? Oh my gosh. When we were publishing with medium, did we ever have a 14 minute story? We might've had one or two, but Jordan Kahn ever go 14 minutes. I mean, is that maybe, maybe, Nate Silver had a great line where he says he's the kind of candidate who needs an editor. Well, that was funny. <laughs> Maybe this is all a kind of backdoor attempt to get to for James Bennett to be able to like just take it easy during the uh, during the during the season. He just puts his brother up to running for office so he can recuse himself from part of his job. That, that more people should be thinking <laughs> yeah, in depth a, like that. I, I could just see James Bennett in the New York Times office, you know, putting his arms behind his head, kicking the feet up on the desk. <laughs> and, well, this go, yeah, you know, I'm gonna going to edit this little editorial about China policy and I'm going to call it a day, you know, because I don't have anything else to do. That's pretty nice. Um, I wrote down Mark Halpern's comeback being helped along by the cast of Morning Joe, but I really don't care. Let's play David Shoemaker guesses the terrible pun headline and or book title. Oh, no. Uh, Remember last week, David? Yeah, the terrible pun headline was the biography of Kingsley Amos called Lucky Him. Um, We got an important tweet from Nicole Hay who says, how is the pun biography title not you come at the Kingsley, you'd better not amiss, um, which <laughs> is really, really great stuff. <laughs> I'm so really embarrassed we didn't think of that. Thanks to Nicole Hay. Um, 
We also got a tweet, David, from Kyle Paletta, who writes for Harper's. Uh, you saw the story about Japanese Emperor Akihito, who abdicated the throne, thereby making his son Naruhito the Emperor of Japan. Okay. Okay. What was the Guardian pun headline celebrating the new Emperor of Japan, which also may be a reference to a continuing piece of American pop culture? Oh my god! I have no idea. This one's way too hard. Uh, is it? Okay, I mean, what, I'm what is just, what is the biggest pop culture story in the world? Is it right Game now? of Thrones? Okay, Game of Thrones. Okay, so I'm going to something with Game of Thrones. Something with uh, yeah. with Japan. Yeah, take the S off Thrones. So let's go Throne. Uh, it's, this is very basic. This is Lucky Him basic. <laughs> Not Game of Thrones, but. Yeah, you're gonna have to tell. I'm sorry, I'm out of it today. I can't, I can't, I can't figure it out. No, no, it's a tough one. Uh, the Guardian headline was "Gain of Throne," Gain oh, no. of Throne for oh, the uh, new Emperor of Japan. Thanks to Kyle. Uh, Kyle, I think said it was great, and I agree. It was it's just simple, but simple, but to the point. If I wrote that headline, I'd be on deadline. I'd be awfully happy with myself. All right, he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Our producer is Jim Cunningham, researched by Chris Almeida. More lukewarm takes on the media next week. See you, David. See you later, man. Robert. Oh, no. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. Mm-hmm. I'm Oprah. Mm-hmm. CNN says I'm terrible and mm-hmm. I'm actually a very offensive, awful person. Mm-hmm. Not a good interview at all. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of horrible controversy. Hey, kids, look at this. We got a sports magazine for a European billionaire who got tons and tons and tons of <laughs> diamonds, the yachts and the Rembrandt. Oh, did I? We basically conquered the world. I mean, I might have needed a little bit of help. We're going to create this little franchise. Yeah. yeah. That was so simple. And yet, and we're not just going after Robert. (laughs) We're going after Oprah. Yeah, I think that's right.